welcome everybody. Why don't you stand up? Let's sing together.
Come on, that's weak. How's everybody doing tonight? Good, good, awesome. Hey, we're going to sing a song. It's, it's a new song. It's called Worthy. And it's, uh, it's been one that is just uh, really resonating with me. And it just simply just says that worthy is the name of Jesus. How many know that the name of Jesus is worthy to be praised, right? And the thing is, how many know that the name of Jesus, there's no other name like it? Is that something we can be excited about? So let's sing this out. It's, it's a pretty simple one to catch on to.
God, we just thank you. God, we thank you that you are the name above every name. God, we want you to be exalted in this place tonight. We want you to reign in this place tonight. God, we want to give you all the glory. God, we want to give you all the honor. 
ultimately we want you to have your way in this place. God, there is none like you. Your name is matchless. You are great in all the earth, God. And God, with everything in us, we just want to give you the ultimate praise tonight. Not because of anything you've done, but simply because you are worthy of it all. God, we thank you for Jesus who makes all of it possible. And it's in his mighty and matchless name we pray. We all said together, amen. Uh, man, well, I'm excited about tonight. How's everybody? Yeah. Amen. Awesome. Well, before we move on with tonight and before Andrew gets up here with our message, I'm going to invite you all to just greet someone next to you. And uh, let's see, if you got a joke, tell them a joke. shaking hands. Let me ask you guys again, how are you guys doing tonight? Fantastic. Happy Wednesday, happy hump day. I hope you guys have had a fantastic week. Thanks so much for being here. For all of you watching on stream, so glad that you decided to join us as well. But let me, guys ask, let me ask you all a question. How many of you were here two weeks ago when Carolyn Custis James was here? Just by a quick show of hands. Awesome. So a ton of you were here. And so you understand. And if you weren't here, she gave an incredible overview, as, and she kicked off this series that we're in on the Old Testament book of Ruth. And so if you missed her talk, I want to invite you to go to our app. You can go to our website, and you can check it out there. But I was here two weeks ago, and something that she said really struck me, and it was towards the beginning of her talk, and that she said that for some of us, maybe even potentially for many of us, when we've been looking at the lives of women in the scriptures, that we've been looking at them through the wrong end of the telescope. And when we do that, their, their lives become small and they pale in comparison to the importance of men. And she was sharing about how she remembers the day when she was studying this book of Ruth, this woman called Ruth that we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks and how someone came alongside of her and turned that telescope around and that, how that changed her life and changed the way she looked at the scriptures. And for the past couple of months, I've been reading several of Carolyn Custis James's books, especially on Ruth, and I feel like it's begun to happen for me as well, in that the way that I look at Ruth and the way that I look at many of the other women in the scriptures has begun to radically change. And my hope for you is, is that if that hasn't happened for you, as we go through this series, that that would be your experience, that you would begin to see Ruth, that you would begin to see the women in the scriptures through a different way in a, through a different lens, through a different side of the telescope. And tonight what we're going to be doing is that Carolyn gave us a great overview of the book of Ruth, of the story of Ruth, but tonight we're going to be diving a little bit deeper by looking at Ruth chapter 1. 
and looking at the tremendous loss that Ruth as well as her mother-in-law, Naomi, experienced. And something that I know about every single one of us here in this room, as well as all of you watching via stream, is that we've all experienced loss in our lives. It may have been the loss of a job or a dream. It may have been the loss of our health, freedom, or our independence. It may have been the loss of someone we so deeply love. It could be the loss of a marriage. It could be the loss of our identity. But whatever loss it was, something that I do know, and this includes myself as well, is that we've all experienced loss in our lives. And one of the, one of the experiences that I'll never forget what happened about a year ago. And I was doing a funeral for a young woman and she was in her early 30s and she had passed away of cancer. And that funeral really impacted me because it struck really close to home. And this was a young woman who had immigrated to the United States several years ago to do her graduate studies. And she graduated and she got a great job. And after working in this job for just a few years, she was diagnosed with cancer and she died very suddenly soon afterwards. And she left behind a young son named Andrew, who was four. And when I was listening to her story, I was reminded of the fact that that's exactly my dad's story. Because my dad immigrated to Canada to do his grad studies. And when he graduated with his PhD, he accepted a great job. And just as our family was about to move to that new city, he was diagnosed with cancer and he died soon afterwards. And I was four years old at the time. And I will never, ever forget the sound of her mother's cries that day. And I associate those cries with loss now because her mother's cries were filled with such a deep sense of pain, sorrow, and loss. Because as parents, we're not supposed to outlast our children, but that's what happened in their family. And they had experienced loss and this woman was grieving. And she was expressing her grief by crying and it wasn't even crying, it was weeping and it was wailing. And so we've all experienced grief. It may have been the loss of someone we so deeply love, like that family, or it might have been some other loss, but we've all experienced it. And the unfortunate thing is, is that because we live in a broken world, that in our lives we'll continue to experience loss as well. And it really, when I was thinking about loss in our lives, it's really a form of suffering. And tonight, as we dive deeper into Ruth chapter one, that's what we're gonna be looking at. We're gonna be looking at the loss and the grief that Ruth, as well as Naomi, as well as Naomi's other daughter-in-law, Orpah, experienced in their life. But when we are grieving and when we have experienced loss, what we're also going to be looking at is that God tells us that he doesn't leave us alone in that place, but he makes some extraordinary promises to us. And he tells us that when we are in that place of grieving and we are experiencing that pain and that sorrow, he promises to give us something extraordinary. And he also tells us that with your grief and with your loss, with our grief and with our loss, that I will use it to create something beautiful in the lives of the people around you. And so that's what we're gonna be looking at today as we dive into Ruth chapter one. And at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, that first handful of words, what it does, it does, it does an extraordinary job of sort of painting a picture of what was going on in the nation of Israel at the time. And at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, these are the first seven words. And it says this, in the days when the judges ruled, that's what it says, the judges were ruling at the time. 
And the judges were the type of leader Israel had between Joshua, who led the Israelites into the promised land, and Saul, who was the very first king of Israel. And in between these two guys, there were the judges. And scholars believe this period lasted from about 1500 to 1100 B.C. And who the judges were and what the judges did was that they didn't do what we typically think of judges as doing today. And that they didn't sit on a bench and listen to arguments, weigh evidence, and render verdicts. But rather, they were primarily military leaders who God used to free his people from their enemies. But something else that we have to understand about the period of the judges is that it was one of the darkest times in the history of Israel. And a phrase in the scriptures that so perfectly summarizes this time is that it says that all the people in the nation of Israel, they did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And when you think about that, it seems like a great description of our relativistic society today. In that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and we live according to these truths. People do what they want according to what is right in their own eyes. That's what they did then, that's what many people do today. But in addition to it being the period of the judges, Something else that was happening was that there was a famine in the land. And so people were starving. And I was thinking about this this past week. And it's hard for us to understand what a famine feels like. Because many of us, and I've used this phrase in the past as well, we say, hey, you know what, I'm starving because we're really hungry. And my kids use that phrase a lot. My oldest two are five and seven. And when they get home from school, they are hangry. And so they are in the kitchen, and they're looking for something to eat. And sometimes they're so, they're so hungry, they're so angry, they're so tired, they don't even know what to do with themselves. And so they have a meltdown right in the middle of the kitchen. Right? And, they, and they constantly, they're screaming out, I'm starving, I'm starving. And I'll give them like five options. This is what you can eat. You can have apples, you can have cereal, you can have toast. And they're like, no, I don't want any of that. So obviously they have no idea what starvation feels like. And oftentimes in those moments, I'm like, you guys need to go on a mission trip. And that's what you guys need to do. You have to understand how the rest of the world lives. They don't get like five choices. And so we use this phrase, but we don't understand what starvation feels like. We, because for most of us here, probably for all of us, we've never been in those conditions. But right now, there are 13 million people in the country of Yemen who know exactly what famine feels like. And one aid worker described the situation that these people are going through in this way. She said children are half the size they should be for their age. A seven-year-old might look four. You can see their rib cages because there's no food. And when there's a famine, people will eat anything. They'll begin to eat dirt, they'll eat grass, they will travel literally for miles, even if there's a hope of gaining a morsel of food. And this was what was happening in the nation of Israel at the time. This was what was happening in this tiny, tiny town called Bethlehem. And so as a result, what happened was, it says, So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So there was a famine that was going on in Bethlehem, nothing to eat. And so this family says, hey, you know what? We need to eat. And so they decided to go to this land called Moab. And the Moabites, what we have to understand about them was that they were the sworn enemies of the Israelites and that they did not get along. And so for this family, Naomi's family, 
who were Israelites to up and move to Moab was not only dangerous because they were going into enemy territory, but it was also shameful. It was as if they were turning their backs on their people and going to live with their enemies. But they had no choice because there was nothing to eat. And when this family got to Moab, the unthinkable happened. They experienced tremendous loss. First of all, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, suddenly died. And so you can imagine the pain and the sorrow and the grief she was feeling because her husband suddenly passed away and she was an immigrant in a foreign land. And especially in that culture, it was particularly bad because Naomi at the time, she's living in a patriarchal culture where the value of a woman was dependent on her connection to men. And so the more connections to men a woman had, the more value she had. So if she had a father, a husband, sons, she had great value in that culture. And so this was a huge blow to Naomi. But thankfully, it wasn't a fatal blow because she still had two sons named Malon, Malon and Killian who could provide for her and protect her. And what we're told is, is that they were in Moab and when they were there, her two sons, they married Moabite women. And for the next 10 years, they tried to have children, but they couldn't. And if you've ever struggled with infertility or you know someone who has, you understand how heart-wrenching that journey is. And I have friends who struggled with infertility for six years. And every single month, their hope would begin to rise. And they would start thinking to themselves, maybe this might be the month where everything changes, where all our disappointments are wiped away. But month after month, during those six months, they were disappointed and they were crushed every month. And this is what this family experienced for 10 long years. And this infertility not only impacted the family or the couples themselves, but it also impacted the entire family. Because in order for a Limelech's family line to be able to survive, it required a son to be born, a male heir to carry on the family line. And in ancient times, survival was everything. And so you can imagine this was devastating, not only for Ruth and Orpah and Malon and Killian, but also for Naomi herself, thinking that her husband's memory, her husband's legacy could be wiped out. And so Naomi had experienced tremendous loss. Ruth had experienced, or all of them had experienced tremendous loss at this point. They were struggling with infertility. Naomi's husband had died. Less protection, less provision. And you think, you know what? Things can't get any worse. Right? Things can. And have you ever, ever been in a place like that where just like you got hit after hit after hit happened in your life? Things just kept on going wrong. And you thought, you know what? Things can't get any worse. And they do. Exactly what happened to this family. Because what then happened is that Naomi's two sons then suddenly died. And they were left without any men. And without a male connection, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah had no place in society, they had no protection, they had no income, and they were left to a society that saw them as having very little value. And again, have you ever experienced something like that where in your life you got hit with wave after wave and just bad thing after bad thing happened in your life and it stripped you of all your hope and you felt like you couldn't even get up? And when I was reading this and just thinking about this, I was reminded of a situation that happened to somebody I knew in Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone is a country in West Africa, and I was there a number of years ago. And this country has some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. 
but it also has some really, really strong currents. And I remember we, were, we had a day off, and I was working for a humanitarian organization at the time. And so we had the day off, and so we decided that we wanted to go to the beach, and we went down there. And so I went with a group of people, and there was a young woman, probably in her early 20s, who went into the water, and the currents were really strong. And I kid you not, she probably went in, and the water came up to her shins. And there was one wave that hit her, and it hit her so hard it knocked her back. And then immediately another wave hit her again, and it knocked her flat on her back. And then wave after wave hit her. So, and they were so strong that she couldn't even get back up. And I kid you not, she's in like a foot of water. And so three of us had to actually come over, pick her up, and bring her on shore. It's the first onshore drowning I've almost seen in my lifetime. I've never seen anything like this. She's in a foot of water, and she couldn't get back up because the waves were hitting her so hard and so frequently. And that's what I think of when I think of what these women were experiencing. Wave after wave. It, it knocked them back, then it knocked them down, and then it prevented them from getting up. And they had experienced tremendous loss, and these three women were grieving. But then Naomi found out that the famine in Bethlehem was over, and now she had no reason to stay in Moab. So she decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to go home. So she decided to go home, and Ruth and Orpah belonged to Naomi through marriage, and so they were planning to go back to Bethlehem as well. But Naomi was a realist, and she also deeply loved her two daughters-in-law. And she understood, hey, you know what? If they went back to Bethlehem, there was nothing for them back there. Because first of all, they were two women who had dealt with infertility, who had struggled with infertility for 10 years. There's almost very little chance that they were going to have a child, let alone a son, which gave them very little value in that culture. Because one of the primary functions of women in that culture was to produce sons. And the more sons they produced, the more value they had. They didn't have any. Because they were barren. But in addition to this, they would be Moabites in Israel, enemies. And not to mention, they wouldn't have a father figure to negotiate their marriage. And so Naomi, understanding this, she wanted to do the compassionate, the loving thing. So she encouraged both Ruth and Orpah, just go home to your father's house. Because at least if they were with their dad, he could provide for them, protect them, maybe even negotiate a marriage for them. And they both initially said no. But Naomi pleaded with them, and so Orpah finally gave in and said yes. But Ruth refused, and she clung to Naomi, and these were her extraordinary words. And she says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And Ruth's decision likely meant that she would be a widow and she wouldn't have any children for the rest of her life. It also meant that she would be an immigrant, that she would be going to a strange land with new people, new language, new customs, and she would also be vulnerable. Because remember, the men were all gone. They were completely vulnerable, no provider, no protector. And also going to Bethlehem meant that she probably would never ever see home Again, she would never see her family, never see her friends. Because remember, the promise that she made to, to Naomi was where you die, I will die. And Naomi wasn't planning to go back to Moab. She was planning to go to Bethlehem and die there, which meant that Ruth would have to stay there for the rest of her life. And so when you think about her decision in that context, her decision was extraordinarily courageous, as courageous as any man in the scriptures. 
And so they went back. When Naomi figured out, you know what? I'm not going to convince this woman. And so they decided to go back. And so they arrived in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem at the time was a tiny town, probably about 100 or 200 people. And you can imagine, Naomi had been gone for 20 years. And when she got into town, the people surrounded her because they probably wanted to know, what have you been doing for two decades? And who's this woman with you? Where's your husband? Where are your two sons? And this was Naomi's response. Don't call me Naomi. And Naomi's name, what it meant in Hebrew, is it means sweet, pleasant, even means joy. And she said, that's not my name anymore, but rather call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. It was a reflection of how she was feeling. And she tells these people, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And when we look at Ruth and Naomi, as I've been talking about, they experienced tremendous loss. And so they were deeply grieving. And what some people have actually done is that they've looked at Ruth and Naomi and their responses, and they've actually compared their grieving process. Because when you look at Naomi's words that we just read, you can, f- you can feel her pain, you can feel her sorrow, you can feel her sense of loss. It's tangible. And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore because that's not who I am. The loss that I've experienced in my life has completely changed me. Now who I am is Mara, which means bitter. That's who I am. And that's her response, and that was in the midst of her grieving process. And Ruth, as we read earlier, she was grieving as well. But her response was very different because she looks at her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, you know what, I am going to go with you wherever you go. I will die where you die. So her response was very different from that of Naomi. And some scholars, they look at Ruth and they say, hey, you know what, look how great Ruth was. Right? She was looking outside of herself. And she was at a place where look at her faith and look at her incredible response. She was loving Naomi in an incredible way. And then they look at Naomi and they say, what's wrong with you, right? Why can't you be more like Ruth? Why did you have to be so negative? Why couldn't you rise and transcend your situation? And in many ways, they've judged Naomi. But when I look at Naomi's words, I don't think there was anything wrong with them. Because I don't think she was being negative. Rather, I think she was simply being honest. And what Naomi's response tells us is that when we experience grief and loss in our life, rather than putting on a mask and saying, hey, you know what, everything is okay, which is the definition of hypocrisy that we've been looking at for the past three weekends in our series, Don't Be That Guy, rather than doing that and saying, you know what, everything's fine, good, and okay, what Naomi reminds us that we can do is that she reminds us that we can tell the truth, not only to the people around us, but especially to God. And so both Ruth and Naomi were grieving the loss of their husbands, children, their future, as well as their dreams. And when it comes to grieving, something that I was reminded of this past week is that for every single person, doesn't matter whether it was Ruth, Orpah, Naomi, doesn't matter if it's you or me or somebody else, that everyone's grieving process, everyone's grieving journey is unique. And that there is, I really haven't seen, some may be similar, but they are unique. They are different for everyone. And there was a woman, um, there's an incredible woman, and her name is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she was was a Swiss-born psychiatrist who was a pioneer in near-death studies. 
And in 1969, she published an incredible book, a groundbreaking book called On Death and Dying, where she presented and discussed in her book the five stages of grief for those who were facing death in their life. And it's an incredible book. And if you haven't read it, I recommend it to you if you're struggling with grief. And what these five stages have since been, uh, have since, what people have done with these five stages is they've adapted them for those people who have suffered loss in other areas of their life. And it's the most widely accepted model when it comes to grief today. And according to the Kubler-Ross model, when someone experiences loss in their life, doesn't matter what type of loss it is, the very first stage that according to this model that they'll enter into is denial. And then the second stage is anger. The third stage is bargaining. The fourth stage is depression. And then they'll enter into the fifth stage, which is acceptance. Most widely accepted model on grief. And this, and this model, and what's so important for also, also for us to understand is this model describes responses to loss that many people, but not all people have. Because as I was talking about, everyone's grief, grieving process is unique and different. And even when Kubler-Ross was alive, she said that this model doesn't apply to everyone because there is no normal way that people grieve. And she said, when it comes to her model, she said, you know what? People might go through all five stages. They might go through none or somewhere in between. They might go through them, in, through them in a different order. They might go through them. They might spend various amounts of time in them. But she said, you know what? Everyone's grieving process is unique, which is why comparing Naomi's grief to Ruth's grief made no sense at all. But if you're a linear thinker, the grief process is really hard for you probably to wrap your mind around. And it was really hard for me to wrap my mind around. And my wife, Robin, she's a marriage and family therapist. And she spent quite a bit of time in a center for grief and loss. So she's very familiar with the topic. And in our conversations this past week, she was inviting me. She was really challenging me to think of grief not in a linear way, but in a unique way. Because everyone grieves differently. But I had a hard time sort of wrapping my mind around this. But what helped me to understand this was a Facebook post that a woman by the name of Kay Warren posted a number of years ago. And Kay and her husband, Rick, decades ago, they started a church out in Southern California called Saddleback. But back in 2013, on April 5th, 2013 to be exact, one of their sons, Matthew, he lost his battle with mental illness and he took his own life. And about a year later, Kay Warren posted this on Facebook talking about her journey in the past year and what had happened. And she talked about the fact that when Matthew first suffered or when Matthew actually made, first made this decision, that the support that both her and her husband Rick received was absolutely overwhelming. And that people sent letters, emails, they called and left messages, they would send gifts and people would uh, send their condolences through other people. And she said the support was extraordinary. But then as the months progressed, she said that that support began to decrease and dwindle and began to fade away. And what began to increase were people started asking, hey, when are you guys going to be okay? When are the old Rick and when are the old K going to be coming back? Because we need them at church. We need you guys up front. We need you guys to lead us. And they started asking questions like, when are you going to get past this? Which so deeply hurt them. And she said, you know what, I understand. I understand why people would ask these questions because on April 5th, 2013, our world stopped 
But everyone else's lives, they kept going. They still had to go to work. People still had to go to uh, school. Children still had all of their lessons. People had to mow their lawns and people had to go to the grocery store. She, but, so she said, I understand because our world stopped and who we are is completely different now. Just like Naomi said, my name isn't Naomi anymore, but call me Mara because this loss that she had sustained in her life had changed her. And Kay Warren said the same thing. She said, what happened on April 5th, 2013 changed us completely. So Kay and Rick, who you knew before, those people are gone because we've changed. This loss has completely changed us. And then she said something pretty powerful about grief. And I thought this was important. And so the words are going to be up, but I just wanted to read this. And this is her, these are her thoughts on grief. And she said, grieving will take longer than you think is reasonable, rational, or even right. And I thought those words were so powerful because those words tell us that for everyone, their grieving process is unique. And then she gives us some very practical information and practical advice on what to do if someone around us is grieving. And she says, but that's okay. Because true friends, they love at all times and brothers and sisters are born to help in time of need. The truest friends and helpers are those who wait for the griever to emerge from the darkness that swallowed them alive without growing afraid, anxious, or impatient. They don't pressure their friend to be the old familiar person they're used to because they're willing to accept that things are different and embrace the now scarred one they love and are confident that their compassionate, non-demanding presence. And I think those words are so powerful. You want to know what you can do with someone who is grieving in your life? Be a compassionate, non-demanding presence. Because that is the surest expression of God's mercy to their suffering friend. They're okay with messy and slow and few answers. I thought those were powerful words. Powerful words that tell us that the grieving process is different for every single person. It was different for Ruth and it was different for Naomi, it will be different for you, and it will be different for me. Grieving is unique. But at the same time, in our grief and loss, when we are in that place of deep pain and sorrow, God gives us some extraordinary promises. And the Apostle Paul tells us the first in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what he says. He says, praise be to the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. And that word comfort, God says, when you are in that place of grief, what I will give you is because I am the God of all comfort, I will comfort you when you are there. And, and that word comfort is such an important word. And the word comfort, how it's typically understood in our culture is that it's a sense of well-being, of contentment, in some ways, people think of it as a freedom from difficulty, pain, as well as sorrow. But that's not the way that Paul is using it here. Because Paul tells us the comfort that God gives us isn't a freedom, isn't an absence from pain and sorrow and difficulties. But rather, it's the encouragement, it's the perseverance, it's the strength to face our troubles with assurance, strength, Confidence, that is what he says. That is the comfort that Paul is talking about. The encouragement, the strength, the perseverance to face the difficulties, the loss, the pain in our life with resolve and confidence. 
Because something that God never promises in the scriptures is that he never says to us, hey, you know what? If you follow me, your, your life is gonna be pain-free. It's gonna be trouble-free. It's gonna be difficulty-free. In fact, God promises us the total opposite in that he says that if you follow me, you will experience these things. But what he also promises us is that when you do, I will give you everything that you need to face these things. I won't necessarily take you out of your circumstances, but I will give you everything that you need to go right through. And one of the thing that, one thing that God promises to give us when we are in that place of experiencing that grief and loss is that he says that I will comfort you. I will encourage you. I will inspire you to keep going. I will give you strength so you can face whatever you are facing with resolve and with confidence. And so often, absolutely. And so often how this comfort comes to us is through other people. And this past Sunday, Danny Cox and I, we were part of a relay team that ran the Detroit Marathon. Any of you run the Detroit Marathon? How many of you did that? Awesome. I see a couple of hands. Awesome. Fantastic. Congratulations to all of you. And it was probably one of the best experiences uh, that I've, probably one of the best things that I've done and one of the most powerful things that I've done in recent memory. But we ran it as part of the Hope Water Project team. And the reason why we ran was in order so that when we ran and when we raised funds, all of the funds would go to providing clean water for the Pokot people in Western Kenya. And if you know anything about clean water, you understand that it will transform people's lives. It has the power to transform people's lives because when people have clean water, their children are able to go to school because now they don't have to spend all day walking miles to get water. Villages and communities are able to come together. People no longer get sick and die of preventable diseases because they're drinking filthy water. Churches are able to get started and people's eternities are changed. Extraordinary things are able to happen when people have clean water. And I will run as long as I have to for that to happen. But on Sunday, somebody who also ran for the Pocot so that they could have clean water was a man by the name of Bill. And Bill... He's a great marathoner, has run a ton of marathons. And so he was running another marathon on Sunday. And if you've ever run a long distance, you understand that at a certain point, you hit a wall and you have to power through that wall. And on mile 23, so a marathon is 26.2 miles. So on mile 23, Bill hit that wall and he hit it hard. And when he was completely alone at that point, there were no other runners around him. And but somebody who was on the sidelines watching was a guy in our community named Scott Claude. And Scott's an incredible runner. He's qualified for the Boston Marathon, but that day he wasn't running because he was injured. And so he was in jeans. He had all these layers on because it was freezing on Sunday. And he was on his bike and he was just riding around the course cheering people on. And when Scott saw Bill hit that wall, he jumped off his bike, he jumped onto the course and he started running with Bill. And Bill, when he saw Scott running alongside of him, he was thinking, maybe this guy will run with me, maybe 20 seconds, maybe 30 seconds, because he saw that he had his bike to consider. And this guy, and he saw that Scott had all these layers on. But Scott continued to run with Bill, and then he started to shed these layers. And Bill started thinking, maybe this guy is actually going to keep running with me. And he did. And then a few minutes later, two other guys, Jason and Zach, jumped in as well and started running with him. And both Jason and Zach, they had just finished a half marathon. But they saw Bill hit this wall, and they jumped in as well. And all of them, what they did for the last two and a half to three miles is that they ran with Bill. They encouraged him. 
They inspired him. They reminded him, do not give up because you are doing this for a purpose that is greater than yourself. And through their words, through their presence, they strengthened him and they ultimately comforted him. Absolutely. You can give a hand to that. And when I first heard this story, I thought this is a perfect picture. This is a perfect image of comfort. And I have a picture of these guys running together and it's gonna come up in a moment. And Bill is the guy in the blue shirt. Scott's on his left, Jason's on his right. And that other guy, he looks like he's laboring too. But anyways, but I thought this is such a great picture of comfort and how God's comfort flows through people to us. That when we are grieving and when we are in such deep pain and loss, there are other people who come alongside of us and they are God's comfort to us. Because it's through those other people that God encourages us, tells us, do not give up, keep going. That he gives us strength so that we can face whatever difficulties and problems that are in our lives with resolve and confidence. That is a picture to me of comfort. And think about the grief and loss that you've experienced in your life. And maybe for some of you that you are in that place right now where that loss is so fresh and you are in the middle of that grieving process. And for others of you, you can remember a time where you, were, where you experienced deep grief because of a significant loss in your life. But my guess is, is that when you look back on that time, you can probably think of people who God used, who, brought, who God brought into your life to be that comfort for you, to run alongside of you, to give you strength, to encourage you and tell you, do not give up. And that's what we see in this story with Ruth and Naomi. Because the one who was able to comfort Naomi in an extraordinary way was Ruth. Because Ruth had the choice, just like Orpah, and there was nothing wrong with what Orpah did, but she had the choice. She could have just gone back to her family, just like everybody else. Just like Ruth could have gone back, just like Orpah did. But she chose to stay with Naomi. And if Naomi didn't have Ruth, she would have had no one. And basically, how God used Ruth later on is that, she, is that he used Ruth to provide food for Naomi and did some extraordinary things through her. And I can imagine that on their road back to Bethlehem, that Ruth was the one who was encouraging Naomi, giving her strength, inspiring her, saying, hey, you know what, keep your head up. Don't give up. We can do it together. And it was and it's so often through other people that the God of all comfort comforts us. But at the same time, God comforts us for a very specific reason as well. And before I get to my last point, what I wanna do is I wanna invite the ushers to come forward to receive our offering for today. And so they're gonna be coming forward. And let me say that if you're somebody who is new with us, please do not feel any obligation to give because we're just thankful that you're here. But, and if you're somebody who does give, whether it's here or online, and it's really, really fast, or whether you use our app and it's really quick to do that, we want to say thank you for catching the vision of what God is doing here in this community and for giving in that way. But Paul also tells us that God comforts us for a very specific reason, and this is what he says. He says, God comforts us so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And what Paul is saying is that God gives us this gift called comfort, not so that we could just hold on to it ourselves, but rather so that we could share this gift with the people around us and also impact their lives. Because God comforts us so that 
we can comfort others. And I love how this one writer put it, in that he said God comforts us not so that we could be comfortable, but rather God comforts us so that we can go out and be comforters, that we can encourage others as we have been encouraged, that we can encourage people not to quit, just like God has inspired us not to quit, that we can strengthen people and love people with the same love and strength that God has poured into our lives. God comforts us so that we can then go out and comfort others. And the incredible thing about that image and looking at that image again, guys, if you could just bring up that image again. And Scott, Jason, and Zach, they're all experienced marathoners. And something that I know about them is that all of them have hit a wall before when they have run. And so they understand what it feels like. And when they've hit that wall, other people have come alongside of them and been a comfort to them. And so when Bill hit that wall, they knew exactly what he was feeling. They knew exactly. When they saw him, they knew that he had hit that wall. And with the comfort that they had received from other people previously, it was with that comfort that they comforted him. That's what Paul says. That's why God comforts us, so that we could then go out and comfort others. And that's exactly what happened with Ruth and Naomi. Because the scriptures don't tell us exactly who comforted Ruth, but a lot of scholars believe that Ruth was comforted in a significant way, whether it was by Orpah, whether it was by Naomi, whether it was by her family or her friends. Because remember, she was living in Moab at the time. And with the comfort that she received, she was then able to comfort Naomi by saying, you know what, I'm not gonna leave you. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my God. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you go, I will go. And she said these extraordinary words. God comforts us, so not so we can just keep it to ourselves but rather so we could share it with the world around us. And so what we wanted to do today is we wanted not just simply to talk about this, but we also wanted to live this out tonight. And so in a moment, I'm going to ask some of you to do something very, very courageous. In a few moments, I'm going to ask if you are someone who has experienced loss in your life recently and you are grieving and you want to receive prayer tonight, I wanna invite you, I'm gonna invite you in a few moments to just put your hand up. And then for everyone else, what I would love for you to do is look for the closest person around you with their hand up. And just like in an airplane where the closest exit might be behind you, take a look because that person might be right behind you. But take a quick look around and look for that person who has their hand up. And then what I would love for you to do is just surround that person. If it's okay with that person, go to them, just circle them and just place your hands on them to pray for them if it's okay with them. And if you're the person in the middle who is being prayed for and you're okay with it, I'd love for you to share maybe a sentence or two to the people who are around you as to what they can be praying for you about. And if you're not comfortable with that, you can just say, hey guys, just feel free to pray as you feel that God leads you. And so that's what we wanted to do today. And for those of you who are being prayed for, what we want to do is we want to show you and we want to express to you in a very tangible way that you are not alone and that the God of all comfort through this community comforts you through our prayers because we believe that prayer is powerful, that it is transformational. And for all of you who will be surrounding that person with the comfort that you have received in your life, this is also an opportunity to go, for us to go and to comfort those who are grieving, who have experienced loss. And so if you're somebody who is grieving right now and you are saying, hey, you know what? I want to receive prayer and I want to experience this comfort. 
that God tells us that he will give us. Right now, what I would love for you to do is I would love for you to put your hand up. Is there anyone who would like to be prayed for? Actually, if you could stand up, I'd love for it to invite you to stand up. And for everyone else, as you see somebody standing up, I want to invite you right now to go to that person and surround them and let's pray for them. And if it's okay with them, place your hands on them and let's pray for them today. And let's spend the next few moments doing this. With the comfort that we have been given, let's also comfort others.
Thank you. 
really big invitation in the room for that tonight. To come and sit before Jesus. There was something said to me a while back that has just hit my heart so hard. That God loves our humanity. He created our humanity. He's not afraid of it. He's not afraid of our anger. He's not afraid of our pain. He's not afraid of our grief. And I have a dear friend and her family that just went through something unspeakable that I can never personally imagine. But the one thing I know about Jesus is that he wants to come with us and that he doesn't want us to step away, to take away our humanity from him. He created it. He wants to walk through it with us. And I just believe that's truth that we need to hear tonight for those of you that are in a place of such pain. Take Jesus with you. I think one of the most beautiful promises is, he says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. What an opportunity. So I just wanna sing that bridge over you guys and just, let's just take a moment to take that step to Jesus. It can be small, when you are dragging your feet. Maybe you don't believe that he's gonna draw near to you, but I think tonight he's saying, invite them. I'm here, he's present. Thank you that you always draw near to us and that you promised that you would always stay with us. God, I just ask that we continue to feel your presence ever near to us, God. God, we love you. And God, I am amazed by the fact that you, in all your power and all your glory, still are mindful of me and care about me and choose to be with me and choose to never leave me. 
God, thank you for such an amazing and unconditional love. In Jesus' name, amen.
Isn't that good news that God's love fights for us? Come on, that's something we can be excited about. We've got one more song tonight. Is that all right with y'all? Yeah. Well, this one is one that has uh, been an anthem for me lately. It just simply says, the bridge says, I will put my trust in you alone because you are a firm foundation. So let's sing this out together. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could. 
never breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you.
Jesus, we thank you for that powerful reminder that no matter what we face, that when we put our trust in you, that when we say, when we build our foundation, our lives upon you, God, that we are not shaken. No matter what happens in our lives, no matter what we face, because you are the firm foundation, God. And as we leave this place and continue on with our lives, God, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of this every single day as we move throughout our day to trust you more and more. God. And so we thank you for that powerful truth. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Just one last thing that I want to leave you with and I want to tell you about is that if you are someone who is grieving tonight and that you would like other people to come alongside of you, we have a fantastic community in uh, right here at Kensington and they're called Grief Share. And they're people who have gone through the grief process and they feel led, they feel called to lead and help others through it as well. And so John Rivers is here with his team. And so John, where are you? at fantastic so he's over there and him and his team are going to be up here and so if that is you before you leave tonight go and talk to his team and people on our prayer team will be up front as well and so thank you guys so much for being here have a great great rest of your week